Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanni Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm your chief investigator of images. Today, we have tackled one of the biggest uh, paintings, I think, in in Western art, uh, one of the most famous, Michelangelo's creation of Adam. And I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague in Oxford, um, Patrick Dawley, author of an amazing book, The Truth About Art, uh, a book that's that's really made me reconsider what we do as art historians and take us back to this idea of quality and the essence of the, the skill of the artist. Um, Patrick, thank you for talking to me today. Not at all. <laughs> uh, we work very closely together. We work, we teach the diploma in history of art together, don't we, yes. as, as well? And the uh, certificate. And the certificate <clears throat> at uh, the Department of Continuing Education. And when I asked you what image you wanted to do, I wasn't sure. You're a Renaissance man, really. I can use that term, but you're happy in the Renaissance. You went for, for about the biggest hit of the lot, didn't Why you? Why not? <laughs> so you thought you'd go big. Yes. <laughs> Why this one, then? Well, it is one of the um, sort of canonical images of Western art. And Michelangelo is perhaps the best-known sculptor, painter and architect in Western art. So why not go for the the biggest hitter of them all? (laughs) (laughs) And I suppose one of the things we uh, take for granted with this image, it's known as the creation of Adam, but the Mm. bit that we often see reproduced on tea towels and and, uh, Christmas cards is the hand, isn't it? The touching of God's hand with Adam's hand, um, that close up. But it is, of course, part of a a much bigger scheme. So date-wise, we're looking Mm. at... 1508? Yes. Um, we know he made a note when he was given the first payment of 300 ducats in his day book on the 10th of May, um, 1508, and he said, I'm to start this very day. Mm. And he worked um, for two for, for three years, actually. <clears throat> and then there was a hiatus of one year when the Pope left Rome. He was in Fer, um, Ferrara and Bologna for a year. Then the Pope returned, the half ceiling was unveiled, and Michelangelo completed the second half in just one year. Good grief. And this is a huge uh, building. I mean, if if you visited the Sistine Chapel, it is a massive space. It's 41 metres long, and the height from the floor is about 40 feet or 13 metres. In fact, the proportions of the Sistine Chapel are based on the uh, measurements given for the Temple of Solomon in the Book of Kings. 
And that was supposedly 60 by 20 by 30 cubits. Mm. And the Pope who built it, Sixtus IV, after whom it's named, clearly chose that as a model. So the ceiling is, as I say, 30 meters or 40 feet high without any supports. Yes. It doesn't have aisles. It doesn't have, it didn't originally have um, external buttresses. And this caused the problem. And this is why the ceiling was painted. So the problem was? The cracks. The cracks, appeared, right. Um, 25 years later, it was built around about 1480. And in 1504, in the spring of 1504, cracks appeared. So that's just 25 <clears throat> years after it's built. Yes. It's already yes. The, this issue of not... Because I think that's what's so magnificent about the space. There are no columns. There's nothing mm, mm. obstructing your view, as you It's expect. a single hall space. Mm. Mm. But of course, that has its issues. So mm. cracks appeared... And then we get out of Sixtus and into Junius, the Julius, Julius II, II, the warrior pope. <laughs> um, Julius was the nephew of Sixtus IV. Um, popes don't have sons, as you know. They, have, <laughs> they shouldn't. <laughs> they have nephews. So if they want to pass on their, um, their connections and their prestige to their family, they have to appoint nephews as cardinals. So Giuliano della Rovere was made a cardinal by Sixtus. And in 1503, the year before the cracks appeared, he was elected Pope. Right. So in a sense, this is a family chapel. Um, originally, the della Rovere arms were displayed on the ceiling. So a cracked ceiling with your family arms on it was actually bad news for Pope Julius II. <laughs> yes, what a horrible thought and omen, exactly. Yes. But also, I think this is something that we, uh, we sort of, have to think about with this period coming into the 16th century the papacy is so powerful or at least it's i mean certainly under julius he's trying to increase the power the reach of the papacy making it into a military state as much as anything else isn't he yes. and art is part of that program yes he needed to display um to the world the the prestige and the power of the papacy he probably wanted to recover the um, prestige of ancient rome mm. and um, this is a brief period of papal power because, as you know, in the 14th century, the papacy had been taken to the south of France by yes. the French king. Then it had lived a peripatetic existence for half a century and only really established itself back in Rome around about 14, in the 1450s. Mm. Sixtus IV was the pope who started to spend money in a big way. And um, Julius now had all the resources of Christendom at his command. And shortly afterwards, the Reformation mm. began. So the, the Pope's resources were, were cut um, shortly after this. This is peak period for papal power and papal resources. Amazing. And into this environment steps this brilliant man, Michelangelo. I mean, he yes. is, I find him absolutely astonishing because of his skills across different mediums, but also underneath it all, this poetry, this this, this writing, he, he documents, which is so helpful for us as art historians, isn't it? Well, he, in particular, he wrote a, a ghosted autobiography. <laughs> um, Giorgio Vasari wrote the famous Lives of the Most Excellent Architects, Sculptors and Painters in 1550. And he was looking at the lives of, of Italian artificers for the last 300 years. And he brings his narrative to a climax with the life of Michelangelo. Mm. Michelangelo is the only living master 
um, at the time in 1550. All the others were dead. <laughs> so Michelangelo is given star billing and he his fame has never um, been eclipsed. It's a funny one as art historians, isn't it? Because in a way, the birth of our discipline is Vasari. Yes. <laughs> all roads lead to Vasari. Yes. And there is an awful lot of um, contrivance and bias in life of the artist, isn't there? We can well, say. Well, I mean, every piece of writing has <laughs> a certain self-interest from the uh, from the writer. But interestingly, Michelangelo obviously wasn't happy with the life that Vasari had written, because three years later, this alternative life um, emerged, was published, and it was written by Ascan Ascanio Condivi, who was a sort of pupil of Michelangelo. And none of us today doubt that this is not Michelangelo's voice. Ah. So we do have some remarks by Michelangelo himself on this ceiling. Right. Oh, gosh. OK, so what mm. does he say? Well, um, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to do it, did he? I mean, that was the first thing we should say that he's he was primarily a sculptor up to this point. Yes, um, he had established his reputation in Rome with that wonderful Pietà, mm. the lovely image of the Madonna with the dead Christ, the grown-up dead Christ on her lap. Um, that was just before 1500. Then just after 1500, he um, produced the wonderful David in Florence. So by 1505, he was well-known, he was famous, and Julius decided that he should make his tomb. Yeah. So he brings Michelangelo to Rome in 1505. Poaches him from Florence. That's right. <laughs> um, Michelangelo, all excited, comes up with this fantastic design of a tomb with 40 sculpted figures on it. The Pope appears twice, um, goes to the quarries in Carrara, brings back all this marble, and then the Pope changes his priorities. Yeah. He decides he wants to knock down old St. Peter's and build new St. Peter's. This is 1506. Um, so his money and his interest shift to that. And Michelangelo goes off in a, a great temper <laughs> and they fall out for a few years. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is so interesting because, of course, one of the other key players in this is Bramante as well, yes. because mm. he's not happy about Michelangelo getting all these commissions. So is it true that he suggests this project? Bramante? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> the the Pope had to occupy um, Michelangelo. He had the problem with the cracks on his uncle's mm. ceiling. And he decided he wasn't just going to patch it, he was going to repaint it. Because it was blue originally, wasn't it? It was uh, the night sky, um, right. blue with stars on it. And Michelangelo, in his ghosted autobiography, said he didn't want to do it mm. um, because he wanted to plug away with the tomb, the, the sculpted tomb. But um, probably he's protesting too much because after the Pope's death, and he died just a few months after the ceiling was completed in 1513, Michelangelo signed a contract with the Pope's heirs for a cut-down tomb and took the money... <gasps> but never delivered the tomb. <laughs> so one of the reasons we think he wrote this ghosted autobiography was to exculpate himself for not having delivered the tomb. And so he says, I wanted to do work on the tomb, but the 
Pope took me off it and forced me to paint the ceiling. So he's covering his back. He's doing that, yes. Oh, because I mean, we we have this image, don't we, of him reluctantly clambering up this scaffold every day and painstakingly lying on his back and. Well, painting I don't know where that image will. comes from. Maybe it comes from Charlton Heston, um, the agony and the ecstasy. This yes. film of the nineteen fifties. And um, my generation of people may have seen that film and their attitudes coloured by it. But obviously, it's a Hollywood fiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> so we shouldn't think of it along those terms. This was um, a big project, a big commission, an important a colossal, one. A colossal um, commission. And I think another reason, not only is it beautiful, not only is it wonderfully painted, but this in many people's eyes, would be seen as, as sort of the high point of what the Renaissance was trying mm. to achieve, mm. would you say? Absolutely. Um, if you look at the figure of Adam, um, it's an unforgettable image <laughs> of the, um, the, the sheer male beauty of this nude figure. Mm. Um, Michelangelo doesn't come up with this from his imagination. Michelangelo is a great student of classical sculpture. Mm. He doesn't want us to focus on that, but it's certainly the case. And he would have looked at ancient um, river gods, of reclining river gods, and they had an older tradition. They go back to the pediments of Greek temples in which you have sculpture in the, in the triangular shape and you needed something to fit in the corners. Right. So yes. a reclining figure fitted those corners very well. Excellent. Of course, because the, the triangular shape with the legs oh, stretching out. That's, that's right. I've never thought of that, Patrick. That's wonderful. Yes. Well, um, <laughs> the Greeks worked on that for several centuries, then the Romans picked up on it, particularly with their river gods. And in the Renaissance, um, other um, sculptors had uh, borrowed from it. So there is a long history to this particular pose. Mm. And um, the great Sir Ernst Gombrich said that painters don't imitate nature, they imitate their predecessors. Absolutely. And this is what Michelangelo has done. Um, it's a classical figure, and insofar as it's a revived classical figure, that makes it Renaissance. Well, this is an interesting point that I had a, a, a colleague of mine when I worked at the University of York used to say that uh, he worked in the history department. He said, all art historians ever do is put two slides up and say, compare and contrast. And, and in a funny way, that is the bedrock of the discipline as well, isn't it? This idea that actually art doesn't appear in a vacuum. There is a legacy, there is a tradition yes, of, yes. of both copying and rejecting what's gone before. Well, if you want to understand what the artist has done, you need to look at what the artist has looked at. And those are his starting points. Those are his references. Yeah. For example, the figure of God the Father on the right, surrounded by um, angels, that ultimately comes from the gates of paradise on the Florentine um, baptistry by Ghiberti a century before. Now, the whole of the uh, story of creation is on the gates of paradise. And Michelangelo, as a Florentine, would have certainly studied it very closely. I love those. But I mean, they're so beautiful. They, they're in many ways seen as sort of the, the, the birth of this new, this, this development that leads to Michelangelo and his work, doesn't it? Because there well, is such classical beauty in those. You have a reclining figure of Adam yeah. and you have God the Father pointing to him and sort of raising him out of the earth. Yeah. This is the moment of creation. And you don't, <laughs> you don't subscribe to this idea that what you see with God the Father and that sort of scarf of, of red around him is the brain or the uterus. I've read that you could say this is a uterus and this is the umbilical cord and it's all about I birth. Think that's, 
that is complete tosh. Really? Um, it, if you want a reference, it comes from Ghiberti's Gates of Paradise, where you see a similar shape. Uh-huh. Um, what do we have here basically is two figures, Adam and God the Father. If you look at the first half of the ceiling, Michelangelo in the Noah's Flood, for example, has about 60 figures. Mm. Then when the scaffolding came down and he saw it for the first time from 30 feet below, do I mean 30 feet? Yes, yes, yes. Um, 13 meters, 40, 40, 40 feet. feet. He must have been shocked at how small they looked like um, from the ground. So for the second half of the ceiling, his figures are much bigger. And this is the first of the second half, basically two figures instead of 60. Fantastic. So and yet, to bulk them. out God the Father a little bit, he surrounds him with these um, child angels. Uh-huh. And there's that lovely image of a, a slightly older young woman there um, with her head emerging from God the Father's arm. Um, Kenneth Clark, in his Civilization series, suggested this may have been Eve mm. um, in the offing, so to speak. But the whole of that group, um, ultimately, as I say, comes from Ghiberti. Yeah, I mean, the woman's been variously interpreted hasn't she you could see a sort of um the church or various different feminine personas but yes i think Eve's quite convincing well we need evidence for interpretation mm. and it could be visual evidence he has looked at there are other previous creations that he's looked at um and we have um his own comments on the in his autobiography okay so so we can say that it's definitely not a brain (laughs) there is absolutely no evidence for a brain (laughs) no evidence for a brain but i love this idea then that he he finally got down on the ground and looked up and thought oh my goodness i can't actually see half the things i've painted i need to go bigger i need to go bolder and clearer so he makes this a very very clear image particularly where he's done the hands because the white backdrop against those hands, it accentuates them, doesn't it? Yes. It makes it very, very clear. There's no distraction. There's no distraction. And this is an important... I think the reason that certain paintings become iconic is because they seem to touch into something so simple, such a simple essence. Hmm. And this idea that through this this one touch, God is giving life to humanity in such a small and intimate gesture. Do you think that's why it's remained iconic? Um, well, I think those are the modern associations of this particular gesture. Again, if I refer to Kenneth Clark, he said it's as if the spark of life is going from the finger of God the Father, jumping the gap yeah. and bringing the earth to life with the figure of Adam. But I'm afraid this is anachronistic because that spark is electrical mm. and electricity hadn't been discovered. Isn't it the start of which which show was it? Was it the South Bank show where it's the two fingers? Yes. So it's yeah, complete anachronism. Complete anachronism. So to explain it, you want to read what um, Michelangelo put in his ghostly autobiography. And I actually have got the passage here uh, in translation, if I can find it. Um, We read, with his arm and with his hand extended, God is seen giving Adam the precepts for what he should do and not do. Thou shalt not eat the fruit from the um, forbidden tree. (sighs) Now this, we think, is Michelangelo's own words. And in a sense, it's a more prosaic explanation Mm. than the 
moment of creation. I feel like you've you've damaged some deep, lasting image in my head now, Patrick. So it's well, what, he's telling him off. Um, <laughs> we are historians, and we we go for evidence. And this is as close to your, what you're going to get from Michelangelo himself Fantastic. as you as you can. And I have to say that the eloquence of the visual image, that wonderful languid arm, mm. and the sort of pointing figure of God the Father transcends this explanation. Mm. So it's perfectly open to us moderns to interpret it in a way which has meaning for us. But historically, it is the God the Father um, giving Adam his precepts. Gosh, again, I'm seeing this completely with new eyes now. And then, and when you think about it in that way, mm-hmm. the, the the way that Adam is languishing and um, he's receiving this instruction, but God looks very determined. The pose, yes, the yes. the facial expression. Yes. There is a sense in which, yeah, he could be seen to be giving him instruction. Absolutely, how magnificent. <clears throat> Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If we think about this in the scheme of the Sistine Chapel then, because is it right there are as many, is it 300 figures some up there on the... Oh, there the, must be more than that. More than that. I mean, there were 60 just in Noah's Flood or something like that. Um, I think it might be 600, actually. So, yeah. yeah, so there's all these different figures and they're all... What I find very fascinating as a medievalist is how in many ways this is still the doctrine of the church that we've seen repeated in church decoration going right back to you know 4th 5th century uh, basilicas but he's treating it with this classicism with this style that is is new and unique isn't it is it the style that's that's unique or is the whole the whole project the whole ceiling has no precedent mm. in Italian um, earlier Renaissance and medieval tradition. And so you might wonder, where does it come from? And there's an answer because nothing comes from nothing. <laughs> Everything comes from something. Remember the tomb that Michelangelo was working on for the Pope? Yes. Um, he was supposed to have 40 marble figures for that tomb. And no doubt he'd been making studies and he had drawings and he had references. And then that commission was stopped and he was given this ceiling to paint. 
he had all those visual images in his imagination and in his drawings. So what is Michelangelo doing? He's actually drawing his own sculptural ideas for the tomb and painting them on the ceiling. Good grief. Because, of course, the ones that we know that survive from the tomb, you've got the Moses, that's very yeah. famous. But then also it's the captives, isn't it? The the two very beautiful, sinewy stuff. I think they're in the Louvre now, aren't they? The, the finished ones are in the Louvre, but in the Academia in Florence you've got the unfinished ones and when they're sort of abandoned ones they seem to be struggling to release themselves from the marble but then if you look at the uh, the Sistine ceiling you will see that um, there are four large um, scenes of Genesis and five smaller ones surrounding the five smaller ones there are these nude youths nudi and the bound captives from the tomb and these nude youths are sort of kindred spirits they're sort of brothers and basically they are Michelangelo displaying his virtu this medieval word uh, sorry this renaissance word which goes back to the ancient Roman virtus is sometimes it's translated as excellence Um, the stem ver is obviously goes back to the Latin word for a man in Republican Rome it would refer to manly excellence sort of success in battle but in the renaissance it meant excellence across the board and Michelangelo wants to show his, I think, quality mm. is the better word to translate virtu. And he's displaying his virtu by showing he, he can do better what the ancients did in sculpture. Mm. And also something we forget, that the walls of the Sistine Chapel were painted in the 1480s by early Renaissance painters. Yes, you've got a Botticelli there. You've got, yes, of course. Indeed. And Vasari tells us that Michelangelo was determined to knock spots off those earlier paintings on the walls below. <laughs> and he's been wholly successful because visitors go into the chapel. They never, never look. Never, never. They never look at the walls. They always look at the ceiling. So he's done it. Yeah, I mean, that's, again, I suppose when we talk about Vasari and and the evolution of the Renaissance artists, there's a sense of um, that it's it's growing. You know, you go from Giotto and his O with this raw talent up to this pinnacle of perfection that is Michelangelo. And in a way, he's creating that that himself in this space. How fantastic. Um, And I think what's also amazing, we do tend to see in and just look at details from this but overall you've got um old testament material on the ceiling haven't you and then it all reaches towards the last judgment up at the top well that's much later that's 20 years later right Mm. right but but that was he was trying in a way do you think to give the basic tenets of the Christian faith? Is this about doctrine? Is this, what is this about? Well, um, it's, it's a story of Genesis. Um, it, the last chapel, the last fresco he painted is the first one in the, in the story of creation. It's a separation of light from darkness. And you go from that to the drunkenness of lower at, at the other end. So, you know, it's a standard Christian narrative. Um, the, the, the huge figures, seated prophets and sibyls, are those who prophesied the coming of Christ, the Isaiah and the Cumean sibyl and so forth. And immediately above the windows on the walls, you have the ancestors of Christ, um, which you get from the opening chapter of Matthew's Gospel. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. Yeah. Michelangelo painted all the begats, huge numbers of them, above the windows. And since the ceiling has been cleaned in the 90s, 
1980s, you can really see them. And and something else I think that you can see after the conservation work, of course, was how um, detailed his brushwork was. Is that right? Because yeah. you know, we, you mentioned to me earlier about well, obviously we you know we he prepared a lot with sketches, but when it came to conserving, he really painted in detail, despite the fact it was forty foot up in the air. Is that yes, Michelangelo had a traditional training. Um, so for his panels, he painted in tempera. He wasn't an oil painter. Mm. Um, he was very conscious later in life. He always said he was a sculptor and he became an architect because oil painting had taken over and Michelangelo didn't paint in oil. He painted in tempera and he painted in fresco. fresco yeah. oh, so, just, just for the listeners, for the architect and listeners, painting in fresco, that's applying the paint into wet plaster, isn't that's it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and the fascinating thing, you know, when the conservators of the 1980s were up at the ceiling, um, they could see the patches of wet plaster that had dried out. And Michelangelo would put out one patch per day so isn't the Italian word giornata is a day's work. Uh-huh. So you can see, um, looking at these patches, that Michelangelo took 16 days, I beg your pardon, 14 days um, to complete the creation of Adam. 14 days for that, that full image. And not only that, but we can look at the sequence in which he worked. Heavens. Uh, because the plaster overlaps a little bit. <clears throat> so we can see that he started in the top right-hand corner um, with a group of angels and the billowing drapery. Day two, he painted the head of God the Father. Good grief. Day three, that female figure who may or may not be Eve. And so on. And he finished with the figure of Adam. So the head of Adam, which is what he started in day 11, he just spent the whole day getting the head right. (laughs) Um, Then the the magnificent torso, the knee in in day 13, and day 14, the last day, that um, stretched out leg and the ground behind it. Oh, my goodness. So I need to get my head around this. So the Conservatives got up close. And they, from looking at where one patch had dried and overlapped with the other, could create a day-by-day process. That is amazing. A diary in plaster. Fantastic. And I I mean, just the the boldness of it, to be able to start off and conceive of this scheme. But but he did sketch, didn't he? So he would have planned the whole image beforehand, is that right? Well, he certainly would have done that. Um, And one particularly magnificent drawing survives. It's a red chalk drawing that's in the British Museum today. And fortunately for us, it is actually the figure of Adam. Um, It is the magnificent torso and the raised leg and the outstretched arm. He hasn't included the head or the pointing fingers. But in a sense, this is a, a more splendid study than the finished painting. Absolutely. More, there's <clears throat> much more definition in it, isn't there, actually? The, the topography of muscle and bone is described on a scale and with a grandeur that is inimitably Michelangelo. <sighs> so whatever his influences were from classical sculpture and Ghiberti and other people, the finished result cannot be confused with anyone else. This is Michelangelo, pure and simple. Because this is what, this again, this fascinates me about him. Is it, 
it's the case that when the Laocoon came up, when the ancient sculpture of the Laocoon was discovered in the Vatican, Michelangelo saw it. He was one of the first to see it in 1506 when it was dug out of a a vineyard. And it is an extraordinary piece, isn't it? You've got the central male figure, the two sons either side, all sinewy and wrapped up battling with the serpents. That's right, yes. And it's what, by that stage, it was over a thousand, more than a thousand years Um, in the ground, wasn't it? Yes. But that would have influenced him. And yet he does something else, doesn't he? He goes beyond that. Well, um, in the figure of Adam, he's not actually influenced by that because Mm. the Laocoon is a twisting figure with his head turned in the opposite direction to his torso. And the last figure that Michelangelo painted is a Jonah. Mm. Um, If you look immediately above the altar, you see this colossal Jonah. You can identify him because he's got a whale. Uh Um, it actually looks like a fish to us moderns, but yeah. Michelangelo hadn't seen a whale. So you can see that figure of Jonah, and that is very close to the Laocoon. Mm. So, so he's pulling all these different bits of, of evidence from the past, but he, he, the way he understands the body, he <clears throat> builds it up from the inside out. Is that how we think he worked? Well, we think he he did make anatomical um, dissections and drawings. I don't know that we've got any evidence for Michelangelo. I think there could be some drawings of skeletons. Mm. Leonardo, of yeah. course, is is the great student of anatomy. We have lots of his anatomical drawings, but um, Michelangelo probably made some dissections. Mm. Um, but he's not interested interested in the workings of the body as Leonardo became. He's only interested in anatomy um, to serve his interest in sculpture and painting. Mm. And and again, one of the things that, that <clears throat> comes down to us about Michelangelo is that he, when he sculpted in stone, he could see the figure inside. And there's this wonderful sort of creation myth going on where he's releasing the figure from the stone. But that, yeah, we do sort of see that in in the aborted pieces that went into the um, the papal sculpture, don't we? Yeah, um, that could well. That, that's a sort of modern, eloquent way of describing it. But we do know Michelangelo's process for that because he started with a wax or a clay or a wax figure. Um, you don't cut straight into marble because you can't correct what you've done. So he worked out his figures in wax and Vasari tells us what he then did. He laid the figure into a, in a tank of water and the tank really should be the same proportions as the block of marble. Then he would let out the water and where an elbow stuck out or a knee stuck out, he would then cut down the marble to that point. And you can do that with a twisty figure the, the lower the level of the water is his guide for releasing the figure. Oh, Patrick, you're telling me things I don't know. This is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. I did not know that. That's incredible. So when he comes to paint on a flat surface, it's. I suppose there is a hankering after depth and dimension, certainly, isn't certainly, there? Yes. Which you can see he's trying to, to do that here. This is a very a deep image. It draws you in. Um, and actually, I think that's something that's so confusing about the whole of the Sistine Chapel ceiling is this this idea of where one figure ends, another begins perspective. He had to do all of that while up close with a brush. Yes. Um, it's interesting that you're looking up at it, but all the figures are seen from the side. Mm-hmm. They're not seen from below. Um, it is a later generation that show foreshortened figures from below. Mm. Um 
it's um, Correggio in, in Parma, who has this vaulted um, the, the dome over the cathedral in Parma, and you look up people's legs. Yeah. For Michelangelo's ceiling, they're all from the side, except for one, which is a later one than the um, creation of Adam. I'm trying to find it on my computer as I'm talking. Yeah. It's, I think it's the... Um, is it the Sybil? It's the, um, it's the cre- separation of light from darkness. You can see um, God the Father's head from below, uh-huh. looking up his nostrils. It's actually not a good way to look at anyone. So, <laughs> it's not the um, most flattering, is it? Exactly. Right? So Michelangelo doesn't do it. Yeah, yeah. And I think you know, when, when he would lose so much of the, um, the definition of the form yeah, that, that, yes, that's yes. so special about it. Um, in terms of... <clears throat> of this being such a famous image. You talk in your book, The Truth About Art, about quality, about recognising true quality. Mm. Is it the quality of this that has made it such an iconic figure for this image for so long? Um, well, uh, Sir Ernst Gombrich came up with a wonderful, it's actually a lecture he gave here in Oxford um, in the Sheldonian Theatre, and he looked up at the painting above the Sheldonian Theatre, which shows truth descending and all the arts in the university imploring truth to come down and reveal itself to the university. And Gombrich pointed out that um, tourists in their thousands don't come to the Sheldonian Theatre in Oxford to look at this ceiling. Um, It's by Robert Streeter, who was sergeant painter to uh, Charles II. They do go to the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Mm -hmm. And the difference isn't about subject matter, it's about the fact that Michelangelo is a marvellous painter and Robert Streeter is not in that league. Mm. There is a qualitative difference between the two. Having spent long graduation ceremonies staring at that, I have <laughs> to agree. So there is something about, about the quality, but also the composition. It's, it's particularly this section. It's so restrained and yet so powerful. Um, the, the use of colour, the use of, of white space as well. It, it is extraordinary. Mm. Um, I really hope that you Art Detective listeners have enjoyed all of this. There is still so much we could talk about, isn't there, Patrick? Yeah. But we've already been talking for a long time. Um, thank you for talking to me about this this image and telling me things I honestly did not know. I'm I'm walking out reeling from this, this conversation. Well, it's been no hardship talking about Michelangelo, I can promise you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. And um, thank you, everybody, for listening. If you've enjoyed this, you can uh, subscribe Subscribe to the podcast at historyhit.com slash art detective. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm Dr. Yanina Ramirez. And I heartily recommend that all of you go out and buy Patrick's wonderful book, The Truth About Art. Your lives will be enriched as a result. Thanks all. Lots more exciting podcasts coming up. But for now, that was The Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. Thanks, Patrick. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.